Hello, and welcome to Queer as Fiction, where we talk about queer historical media. I'm Jace. I'm Alice. And today we're talking about the 2022 TV series A League of Their Own, based on the 1940s All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the Bunawong Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We recognise them as the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. We also have some content warnings. This episode will discuss systemic racism and homophobia, homophobic violence, and involve the use of outdated terminology for both African Americans and queer people. If any of that sounds like something you wouldn't want to listen to, please feel free to check out one of our other episodes. So the first thing I just wanted to note is that obviously it's just the two of us today. Eli's not feeling very well, so, um, and Irene hasn't watched the show. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it's just going to be me and Alice. So in discussing this show, I want to look at the history of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, henceforth to be referred to as the AAG PBL. Yeah, I'm going to remember that for sure. (laughs) Look, we're going to get further into that in a little bit. I then want to go into the social dynamics of the league and the real-life queer women who participated in it. Throughout the discussion, I'll be pointing out parallels between the history and the show, Uh, so if there's anything I point out that makes you think of the show, uh, feel free to bring it up. Finally, I'm going to issue a preemptive apology to baseball fans for getting (laughs) their terminology wrong. (laughs) I've got my own esoteric bat and ball sport in the form of cricket, and so let me just say I empathise, but we must acknowledge that the rest of humanity is correct in mocking all of us. (laughs) Yeah, if I try to use any terminology to describe what happens, it will be cricket terminology. So uh, (laughs) I hope everyone's prepared for that. So the AAG PBL was founded by Philip K. Wrigley. Yes, Wrigley is in the chewing gum. Okay, yeah, I was in my head being like, that's definitely some kind of chocolate lolly, but you're right, it's chewing gum, obviously. Yeah, it's chewing gum. Although he'd inherited both his status as a Major League Baseball, MLB for short, uh, (laughs) and the gum company from his father. Wait, he's in the show, isn't he? He's not called Philip K. Wrigley in the show. But, like, it is that guy that's in the show that, like... Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wrigley Field, where the league's initial tryouts were held, remains the home stadium of the Chicago Cubs to this day and is therefore, unsurprisingly, located in Chicago, Illinois. It all tracks. <laughs> so the league was formed in 1943 in response to World War II drafts, meaning MLB teams were struggling to form squads. While the 1943 MLB season eventually went ahead unimpeded, Wrigley and his cohorts decided to proceed with the plan as they believed the games would provide the community with low-cost entertainment. Okay, fair enough. When you say low-cost entertainment, is that because they paid the women less than they would have paid the men? Did they pay men to play baseball at this time? Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there was professional baseball, and, yeah, this was going to be professional women's baseball. Obviously, they weren't going to be paying them as much. Yeah, I mean, they don't pay them as much now. I can't imagine they paid them as much in 1943. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I think also they kind of, because they're expecting the crowds to be less, Mm. you know, you charge less for tickets. Yeah, yeah. They initially planned for the league to be played as softball, building on the 40,000-plus semi-professional women's softball teams to be found across the US and Canada as of the 40s. Wait, 40,000-plus teams or 40,000-plus people who are in teams? Teams. That's crazy. Yeah, there was a lot of women playing softball. Okay. In the US and Canada. Is the only difference between softball and baseball the softness of the ball? Uh, no, we're going to get into that. <laughs> okay, because I have played softball in my life. I've never played baseball. Yeah, uh, there's there's a few differences. Largely, it's the same sport, but there are a, f- a few major differences. Okay, cool. Indeed, the original name of the league was the All-American Girls Softball League, 
and it was variously referred to as the All-American Girls Professional Ball League, All-American Girls Baseball League, and American Girls Baseball League. The AA All-American Girls Professional Baseball League is what they landed on? So, note that most of these names lack the P for professional. This was actually only officially added in the 80s after the Uh, creation of the Players Association and sort of like an official kind of bringing in of the women's league into sort of men's records. Yeah. Or like into official baseball records. So at the time, they were just the like all-American girls ball slash softball slash baseball league. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Like one of those names had, one of those names they used at the time had the word professional in it, but you know. They used a bunch of different names over the course of this league. Basically, like, what we're getting at with a lot of this is that the structure of the league was nowhere near as settled as early on as it seems in the show. Mm -hmm. It does sound very ad hoc. Yeah. Uh, Now, does any of this naming terminology stuff mean anything? No. But I I had to learn (laughs) it when I was researching this episode, so I'm inflicting it on you. That's fair. That's fair. (laughs) I feel like... In the olden times, to generalise horribly, as historians should not do, people were much more lax about, like, you know, this is the name of this thing, this is how you spell it, this is the order the words go in. They were just kind of like, it's that thing, you know, baseball, women, league. Just (laughs) put all the words in, it's fine. I guess, like, there were a lot less acronyms back in the day, and so having your acronym not be super settled wasn't as big of a deal. (laughs) I guess so. I guess so, yeah. So to get back to the rules, the league's owners first made some alterations to the softball rules to make the game more like baseball, then further alterations, uh, partly for concerns over entertainment value and partly over concerns from the managers who wanted to be coaching the more intricate sport of baseball. These changes occurred slowly. Uh, In the first season of the league, the pitchers were still underarm and Mm. the ball used was a 12-inch circumference ball as it's used in softball. In my mind, I pictured 12-inch diameter for some reason and I was just picturing like a full-on basketball. (laughs) That's not what's happening. Rather than the nine to nine and a quarter inch balls used in baseball, uh, that as a result of the size difference, travel significantly faster through the air. Okay, yeah. By the final season of the league in 1954, things had pretty much reached standard men's baseball distances and sizes, although even at this stage, the base paths, which is the distance between each base, were still five foot shorter than in the men's game. So obviously there's arguments for making it more like baseball, which is going to be more entertaining, and the men managing it want it to be more like baseball. Is the argument for making it less like baseball just like women are too soft to play baseball? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. You know, I think there might be some similar kind of arguments to like what we get with women's footy on mm. like, you know, maybe using a slightly smaller ball because the players are on average going to be smaller. Yeah. Obviously, you wouldn't do that in baseball because a smaller ball goes faster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I guess things like having a slightly shorter like distance between bases is like, well, overall, this is a smaller scale game because the people are generally smaller. Yeah. 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 Um, and like, you know, you generally want to encourage higher run scoring if you're going for entertainment yeah the shorter the base paths the more runs will be scored yeah yeah obviously i get why all of this like tinkering was excluded from the show (laughs) Um, but as someone who follows the women's australian rules football competition the parallels in rules development and concerns for how women will cope with things like ball size and distances are very clear and notable i mean like you know we've been playing in a netball competition Mm. uh you know for the last year or so and the entire sport of netball developed out of similar concerns yeah it's just like basketball for women but now it's its own sport yeah I think it would have been interesting. Obviously, you don't want the nitty gritty of this in the show. Like, you don't want every episode to be like, now the ball is 10 inches in diameter. But I think it would have been interesting to show a bit of that adaptation of the sport for women. 
Yeah, and I think probably, I guess if they were doing the show differently, which um, they might have done if they knew they were only going to unfortunately get two seasons. Yeah. And were showing multiple seasons, uh, multiple seasons of the baseball league. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the one season of the television show. Yeah. Then it might have made more sense to show some of those rules developments. Mm-hmm. But obviously as it stands you know, most of this show is going to end up having been the first season. So if they'd started with, like, underarm pitches and stuff... Yeah. They probably wouldn't have... It, it wouldn't have really made sense to change that kind of stuff halfway through the season. And, yeah. So I, I get why they didn't do it. I want to note here that there was actually a second professional women's league running concurrently with the AAG PBL. The National Girls Baseball League evolved out of the Amateur Metropolitan League... And here's where we're getting confusing terminology once again. I'm already confused. <laughs> the uh, NGBL remained underarm for the 10 years of his existence. Note the use of the word baseball in the name of the league, but it was in fact underarm, which is more like softball. Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. Like, like <laughs> there was an underarm league that was called the baseball league, and there was an yeah. overarm league that was called the baseball league. So, like... <laughs> okay. I just think they weren't very settled in their terminology. They just blurred the lines between baseball and softball. But yeah, and many players played in both leagues over the course of their respective existences. Mm -hmm. So can I ask a question you may not know the answer to? Sure. (laughs) When did they invent baseball? Uh, So my understanding, I didn't look a lot into the overall history of baseball, um, (laughs) uh, is that we're looking at like early 19th century um, in the US, although it kind Mm -hmm. of, you know, wasn't necessarily fully the same as baseball we know today, obviously. No yep. sport is the same as it was 200 years ago, really. Okay, but I was just kind of wondering if the reason that this kind of baseball, softball, underarm, what ball do we use thing was so blurry was because it was all kind of recent. But it sounds like baseball had been around for a while. But maybe just like how do we play women's baseball was kind of more up in the air. Yeah, I also don't know if the overarm pitching was necessarily something that had been around the whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that'd be something I'd have to look into, but I didn't look into <laughs> that. Um, because That's I know, fair. like, for example, in cricket, like, um, underarm bowling was the standard for a long time. That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> I um, feel like in both cricket and baseball, the bowling action is such an iconic part of the sport that, like, to think of it being different is just like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, because cr- cricket, you know, and I assume baseball went through similar things. Cricket went through underarm and then it was, like, round arm, so, like, a sidearm kind of oh, action. Oh, okay. Um, and it was only after that that the sort of full bowling action yeah. um, going over the shoulder came into play. Imagine if you're the first cricketer to face someone who's figured out how to bowl over the shoulder. That would be the most terrifying moment of your life. Oh, we have, like, testimony from this. Oh, great. Um, I think, I think actually, one of the things is, like, either the first round-arm bowler or maybe even the first over-arm, over-the-shoulder bowler was a woman. Ah, oh, cool. Um, and, it was, and it was a case of, like, it was easier to bowl in the, like... Uh, clothing that she was wearing or something like that. Oh, something yeah. like that. I Don't quote me on that. Cause like... <laughs> <laughs> but I was something linked to at least what being a woman. Yes. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Um, so anyway, to get back to <laughs> baseball, <laughs> uh, I'm revealing myself as a cricket nerd. Look, we did warn them. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, to get back to baseball, uh, so given all of that context about a concurrent league and like so many like semi-pro and amateur teams existing, uh, it's not super surprising that recruits for the AAG PBL were largely drawn from the aforementioned teams, while managers were, largely speaking, retired professional male players. The latter is represented in the show, but the former is skated over a bit, with our two leads having more of a like personal and or familial connection with the game, mm. rather than pre-existing sporting opportunities. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of gives you the impression that, like, this is the first time that women have ever had, like, 
an organized competition almost. And it's obviously like that's not the case, right? Like, yeah. Like, like even in the world of the show, yeah. Obviously, like there are hundreds of women at those tryouts in yeah. the first episode, and so it's like, well, hang on, where did they come from? Yeah, like if you think about it, logic, it's like obviously these women must have already been competing and playing this game, and a lot of them have been playing regularly because a lot of them are obviously very good. But yeah, I don't think the show actually shows you that. Yeah, so this is one area I'll give the movie from 1992, which we're not going to talk a huge amount about in this episode, mm-hmm. but I will give it credit here because uh, our main characters in that movie are depicted as already playing softball and already playing competitively for their like local team. Mm-hmm. Although I will say I laughed pretty hard at the like beautifully made up faces, which <laughs> then had dirt artfully smudged over them. <laughs> So it wasn't like the thing that they show in the show where they're kind of trying to make the women look beautiful while they play baseball. And that's a conscious in-world decision that's kind of objectifying women playing sport. It wasn't that. No, no, because that happens in the movie, but that happens when they actually join the league. Okay. At the start, when they're like in their like small country town playing in a softball league, it's like you've made up these actresses for a Hollywood <laughs> movie and then smudged dirt on their faces. <laughs> and also it's like, why do they have dirt on their faces? It's a key part of baseball, just rubbing your face on the ground. No, no, it's, it's not even that. It's because they're in the country. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, everyone in the country just has dirt on their faces? Yeah. All the time? Yeah. Yeah, that's how it is. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, so I want to sort of stop here to talk about the presence of African-American players mm-hmm. within baseball. So as with the MLB, Major League Baseball, which is the top men's league, uh, players were informally segregated, meaning there was no official rule barring their participation, but that managers would not recruit black players. Okay, yeah. So denied the chance to play in the AAG PBL, at least 12 women played in the Negro Leagues alongside the men during this time period. Okay. Uh, in particular, in 1953, the 18-year-old uh, Mamie Peanut Johnson, a pitcher, went to Washington for a tryout with the uh, All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. She and her friend, also African-American, hadn't realized that the league remained all white. After being ignored for 15 minutes, Johnson turned to her friend and said, we better go, I don't think we're wanted here. She then proceeded to find a men's semi-pro team that did want her before playing in the Negro League for the Indianapolis Clowns, whose owner... (laughs) Yes, we'll get to that. Okay, we'll come back to that. Yeah, Uh, whose owner, Sid Pollack, specifically recruited women players during the early 50s in response to the exodus of male players to the major leagues led by Jackie Robinson. So this was basically the end of the informal segregation within the men's professional leagues Mm -hmm. uh, meant that the Negro Leagues no longer had as many star players. And so they just started, uh, in particular, one owner was like, what if we got some women? Okay, that's interesting. So the Clowns were, at the time the show is set, a legitimate competitive team that played in the Negro American League, but after the decline in those leagues would become a barnstorming team, which included players known for comedic acts, and would continue to operate as a humorous sideshow until the 80s, officially disbanding in 1989. So they were called the Clowns before they became a, like, comedy baseball team. Yes. But then they became a comedy baseball team. Yes. Well, that's... An odd turn of events. <laughs> I think, you know, if I went really deep into this, I'd probably find that, you know, there was a kind of general dismissive attitude mm. towards African-American baseball leagues. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, you know, led to things like a team being named the Clowns. But, yeah. like, yeah, they, this did, I wanted to make it clear that this team did play in a serious competitive league. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly because there's an obvious parallel uh, here to the story we get with pitcher Max Chapman in the TV show. 
Uh, and I figured I'd bring Max up here because her story is for aforementioned reasons of segregation, not going to come up when this, describing the specific culture of the AAG PBL itself. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, um, you know, obviously we get Max uh, and her friend Clance going to the tryouts, then being like, oh, okay. I guess this isn't for us. Which is basically exactly the story you just told as well. Yeah, At a different it, time, but the same story. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing with a lot of the things in the show is they kind of combine elements from different seasons. Mm-hmm. And then obviously there's also the thing where Max's plotline in season one is she eventually ends up on a touring team. Certainly a team that fits the kind of barnstorming description uh, yeah. that I just gave of a team that's not necessarily strictly competitive. In the show, it's like that they're being paid extra to lose, but doing an entertaining manner Mm -hmm. you know they don't go as far as to have like explicitly comedic players i believe in the show i think they're just kind of fun rather than like you know doing clown tricks i don't know yeah they're not like straight up clowns they are still playing baseball but they Mm. are doing it in a fun entertaining rather than competitive way yeah so yeah that's kind of the baseball side of things but i want to also talk about the sort of general queer cultural side of things that Mm -hmm. we see uh with max so tristan cabello writing for out history refers to the segregated black queer subculture in Chicago and surrounding cities during the 40s and 50s, uh, including the prominent transgression of gender roles and rambunctious house parties. Mm. These are obviously both prominent elements of Max's subplot in the show, featuring her trans uncle Bertie and his social scene. Yeah, and they do see that, they do show that contrast, which historically exists of like white queers go to bars, even though those bars are illegal, they do go to bars, but black queers go to houses. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah, so, like, another notable element in uh, Cabello's writing is a reference to the following regarding queer African Americans who specifically avoided advertising their queerness in Chicago to maintain respectability in the face of straight society. Um, uh, He writes, uh, Reverend Cobb started giving homophobic servants in the mid-40s, but was known to have gay sexual partners in many other cities. I bring that up because obviously it kind of mirrors Max's relationship with Mrs. Turner, whose husband is a preacher in the mm. show, but also because, yeah, it, it speaks to kind of what you were just talking about, where like, you know, a lot of the queer African-American people were going to house parties or they would even go to different cities and go to queer bars there. Yeah, yeah. Rather than have their queerness be known within Chicago mm-hmm. or risk having that be known. So when you say within Chicago, is this just like within Chicago, not specifically because of anything about Chicago, we're just kind of talking about not being out in your hometown? There was a significant population growth within Chicago at the time mm-hmm. and there yep. was a significant African-American migration into Chicago at the time. Yeah, yeah. And so there was the development of these communities and there obviously were a lot of queer people within those communities, but then like they would kind of deliberately avoid Chicago and keep that mm-hmm. as a kind of oh, okay. non-queer that space. was part of a centre of that African-American northern migration at the time. Yeah, I think that's basically the impression that I got. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, which is not to say that there weren't queer African-American subcultures within Chicago itself. There obviously were, yeah. but like some of them were kind of avoiding that. Mm-hmm. That's interesting when you think about kind of the idea we hear more commonly in like white queer history of people kind of coming to the city because they're queer to be queer in the city. Mm. They're like, oh, I need to go to the big city. That's where the gays are. That's where I can be more open about being queer and meet other queer people. Whereas this is more like, okay, I need to leave the city to have my queer identity elsewhere. Yeah, and I think it's kind of a thing of like going to a mid-sized city and then mm. being like, I can have a bit of anonymity here. Yeah. But it's still a city, so there's still going to be some queer people around. Yeah, yeah. But it's not a big enough city that there's like my whole community is there and somebody will figure me out. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. And I think, yeah, because you've got a lot of, like, migration, it's like, well, I can have a new start in this city. Mm-hmm. But then it's like, okay, I'm going to go to another city to actually, <laughs> like, live out my <laughs> queer life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that I, you know, there's very little chance of that being brought up in my day-to-day. Mm-hmm. And I think there was also kind of an effort to, like, avoid, you know, crackdowns from, uh, like, white law enforcement yeah. on these black communities by not having as much open queerness. Yeah, and I guess it also makes sense if you're going somewhere else to be queer, as it were, you're less likely to get caught because, you know, if the cops hear that, oh, the queers were here yesterday, you're like, well, I'm, I'm back home, like, I'm out of here. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, before we move on, I just want to say, like, I really enjoyed the plot line we got with Max in the show. Mm. Um, I thought it was really interesting and compelling. Like, we got a lot of different, uh, like, African-American perspectives on queerness and yeah. on identity. I felt when I started watching the show uh, that, oh, okay, we're doing these two pretty separate plot lines. But I thought they did a pretty good job of making them, like, run parallel to each other and occasionally intersect. Yeah, I think they did a very good job, given that they're obviously the show centers on what is a white baseball league to include african-american stories and never have you feel like it's like oh you're including this because you feel like you should but it's not actually relevant to the main story like it always felt like it belonged there yeah, yeah. Uh, alice hasn't watched the movie um no. because we didn't really feel it was necessary to do this episode uh because spoilers the movie's not explicitly gay in the way that the show is i will say that the movie features a much more tokenistic uh representation of uh african-american baseball players where uh at one point a pitch like flies over the fence and a uh, black woman picks it up and one of the players is like oh pass it back and she throws it like way over her head to like the catcher yeah and it's like ah yes we are hinting at the historical reality that there were black women who were very talented baseballers who didn't get the same opportunities and that's nice that that is there yeah but obviously is nowhere near the kind of like genuine representation we see in the show yeah yeah that's not you know exploring that story in any depth it's good that they acknowledge it but you can do better So moving back to the AAG PBL, I could spend the next hour going into the progression of the league, the results, although I will note that the team depicted in both film and TV show, the Rockford Peaches, were the most successful, winning four titles. Oh, okay. I was wondering if the teams were real or if they'd like made up different teams or what. No, the teams are real. Okay, cool, cool, cool. (laughs) And, you know, the eventual reasons for its folding in 1954, rather predictably, the return of men from the war cut off much of the sponsorship agreements Mm -hmm. and many players returned to their husbands, diminishing the player base. Yeah. Uh, but this is not Women in Sport, the podcast. And so, <laughs> That'd be a fun podcast. Yeah. And so we're going to get into the social dynamics of the league and the completely unexpected existence of queer players. I love how in the show you get to a point where they like go to the bar, like the queer bar they go to, and it's like, and she's here? And she's her too. And like gradually just kind of throughout a couple of episodes, it reveals that pretty much every player is queer. <laughs> and I enjoyed that. <laughs> or like, if not every player, but certainly like a, you know, maybe not a majority, but like a decent chunk, like probably a third, somewhere between a third and a half. Yeah. 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 There are definitely still straight, straight players. But yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the kind of social dynamics of the league. So one thing that both the original 92 film and the new TV show do not really exaggerate is the concern of the league's owners with the image of the players. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there were rules about the uniforms. Rules stated that skirts were to be worn no more than six inches above the knee. That's Uh, pretty short, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, this regulation was most often ignored in, in order to facilitate running and fielding, you know, 
playing baseball. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how long can your skirt be if you need to play sport in it? Not that women haven't been forced to play sport in very long skirts over the years, but you know. (laughs) The evening school charm classes run by Helena Rubinstein, whose chain of beauty salons and extensive marketing had made her name synonymous with femininity, were a thing. Uh, You get that a bit more extensively in the movie, I think, rather than Mm -hmm. the show, or you still get it a bit in the show. Um, Probably actually about the same. Even after the charm school was discontinued after a few seasons, players continued to be issued with makeup kits and booklets prescribing appropriate feminine behavior. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so ridiculous. Oh, yeah. They're like, hmm, we need people to play sport. People will pay money to see women play sport. But we have to make sure they're still, like, womanly. We can't undermine gender here. That's not on. And, yeah, I mean, both the TV show and the movie are very, like, upfront about this and like you know the owners of the league and people involved just sort of being like yeah we still need you to be women yeah yeah and kind of news reports from the time you know sort of talking about oh well like what has happened to women (laughs) you know and like (laughs) obviously that like uh at least in the movie because i've watched the movie more recently they explicitly connect that to the kind of thing of like women going into the workplace during world war ii yeah oh, we've already sent them into the factories and now we're getting to play baseball. Like, where's it going to end? Kind of slippery slope arguments. Yeah, and then, you know, beyond that, you've got like things like haircuts, pants, clothes. Uh, players were sacked for their haircuts, including uh, Josephine Jojo D'Angelo, uh, a clear inspiration for Joe in the TV show. Yeah, yeah. Recruits were sacked for showing up to spring training with short bobs or told they'd be sacked if they got a close trim cut. Even shoes could be grounds for censure. Dottie Ferguson was warned by her chaperone against wearing girls' Oxford shoes because they were excessively masculine looking. So what kind of shoes did they wear to actually play the sport? That's a good question. I didn't see any, like, policing of that. I guess yeah. like, there must just be, like, standard baseball shoes that are, like, weren't considered to be overly masculine. Yeah, although I would consider it acceptable on the field, but off the field it was like, no, you need your feminine shoes on now. Yeah, but yeah, like, literally being warned for wearing what were, in fact, women's shoes. Yeah, but, like, your women's shoes are not feminine enough. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the the chaperones with the kind of fine systems existed, uh, policies existed against fraternizing with other teams, ostensibly to foster healthy competition, uh, while chaperones would fine players and change their room arrangements with impunity. Okay, so is this explicitly to prevent them being too gay, or was that just kind of like implied but never talked about? Yes, you were right the first time. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, this is all rather a lot, and unlike the 92 film with its brief allusions to sexual confusion and masculinization, we are going to engage with what the 2022 series reckons with. A large part of the reason why all these rules were in place was the concern the players would be seen as what would at the time be termed freaks or Amazons. One of these names is quite a bit cooler than the other. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, lesbianism was an explicit concern of league management and something players were conscious of. Says Dottie Green, a former player and chaperone, The lesbians, they dressed like men with those big pants and big shoes. Most of them, they had boyish bobs. (laughs) (laughs) Or as the aforementioned Dottie Ferguson put it... uh, (laughs) When you said Dottie Green, I was like, oh yeah, Dottie. Yep, we heard about her before. No. No, no. different Dottie. Okay. Um, As the aforementioned Dottie Ferguson put it, tomboyish girls who wanted to go with other girls signaled it with their mannish shoes and clothing. It's all about the shoes. (laughs) Yeah, the shoes seem to be a really big deal. You can see why they were policing the shoes. It's the shoes were kind of like the, you know, the tell at the time that you would use to signal to the other lesbians. <laughs> uh, I'm just thinking about like like shoelace codes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, in reality, the anti-fraternization policies aimed to avoid relationships between players outside of the strict purview of the chaperones, who would refuse to let suspected couples room together and gauge the rest of the team's reactions to confirm their hunches. Okay, so they're not only trying to like break up the lesbians, they're kind of trying to play them off against each other to like weed out the lesbians. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. really messed up. Yeah, 100%. One manager released two of his players because he thought they were gay and was worried they would contaminate the rest of the team. Mm-hmm. Yep. In another case, a married player was rumoured to have fallen for one of her teammates. That player converted this young married woman in just two weeks, said Fred Leo, who was the league's publicity director and later its president. I see. Yes. <laughs> Another time, Leo said that a married player was discovered to be in a relationship with a woman who was unassociated with the league. Leo claimed he notified her husband who came and took her home. So yeah, there was a lot of explicit league concern with being homophobic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm honestly surprised married women were even allowed to do this. Like, given that I don't know what the laws exactly were in America at this time, but in Australia, married women couldn't work at this time. It's very surprising they let them just travel around playing baseball. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess that was a big part of, you know, like a lot of the husbands were away at war. Yeah, yeah, I guess they're policing their behavior less. But yeah, yeah. I think I think that's a major factor, you know. Yeah. Like, if you were a young woman and you were married, your husband almost certainly was away at war. Yeah, I mean, I guess at this time married women were working because of the war. Yeah. So yeah, all of this is not great. And it's interesting that something we don't get a chance to see in the show is the specific concern with women playing hardball actually meant some lesbian players stuck with the softball circuit, where they could go around unchaperoned and avoid dress codes. Oh, okay, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, um, so Dot Wilkinson, who's often... <laughs> Are any of these women not called Dot? Just, you uh, know, out of curiosity. <laughs> yes. We're about, we're about to hear about a woman whose name is not Dot. Okay, good, good, good. Checking. <laughs> um, so, Dot Wilkinson, often regarded as the greatest softball player of her time, and perhaps all time, uh, liked to play in Levi's or shorts and didn't want to move away from home where she would eventually develop a relationship with another player, uh, Estelle Ricky Kaito, that would last 48 years until Kaito's death in 2011. Hmm. I was going to say, I feel like the show just kind of doesn't actually show as much this fear and consequences of like being thought of to be a lesbian. Like obviously that is the ultimate plot of the show and in the later episodes, you do see a lot of fallout from that. But I feel like earlier on, they're kind of able to get away with a lot of stuff without too much crackdown. Like, just when you're talking about players being fired for being suspected of being lesbians, like... Oh, uh, I think that is something that happens in the first few episodes of the show. Okay. Where, you know, you sort of get the... Like, because, yeah, you have the initial couple of episodes where players are being cut for not being feminine enough. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of concern uh, for specific players. Uh, so uh, Jess McCready, who's kind of a very, mm-hmm. like, butch character uh, in the show, is almost cut at various points because she can't do makeup and she yeah. can't, you know, like, she re- kind of refuses to engage with a lot of these beauty classes and stuff. And, like, the other players kind of go to a lot of effort to sort of get her to an acceptable level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think part of it is that, you know, part of the plot of the show is uh, our main character, Carson, slowly discovering the queerness of the other players. Yeah. And so I think there's a lot of stuff where if I went back and watched the first few episodes, it would be really obvious (laughs) which players 
were afraid of being discovered to be gay or afraid of being perceived as being mm. too gay. Yeah, yeah. And I guess like it's the nature of storytelling that you have to have the stakes rise, therefore you have to have this kind of going on in the background and gradually come to a head. Yeah, and I think it's um, pretty obvious that the more traditionally feminine queer players mm-hmm. aren't as worried in those initial couple of episodes about yeah. being discovered because, you know, they're, they're like, well, I fit into traditional feminine beauty standards and so it's less likely that people are going to perceive me as being queer. Yeah, they're only going to get caught out if they're actually caught out doing something gay rather than just somebody being like, mm, you don't seem feminine enough. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, although even then we see uh, Greta, like, going out of her way to flirt with men. Mm-hmm. specifically yeah. to avoid that accusation yeah uh so of course there absolutely were lesbians in the aag pbl itself uh the aforementioned d'angelo was known to have run with a group of lesbians even before her time in the league but kept strictly to the behavioral codes during her time in the league similar to kind of shoujo's attitude mm-hmm. um her sacking due to a haircut came after a barber convinced her who it would be a good look for her she didn't even want the haircut so it wasn't like she was like, you know what, I'm going to cut my hair short, I'm gay, this is the look. Above was just like, oh, this is in right now. Yeah. That sucks so much. Like, obviously also choosing to have your hair short because you felt it expressed your identity and then getting sacked for it also sucks. Like, <laughs> both ways this could have worked are terrible, but like... It kind of shows the fact that the barber convinced her this was a good haircut. It's like perhaps not that outlandish, not that alternative a haircut. Like women were having short hair at this time, but they're obviously in a situation where it's being like extra police that they perform super feminine, like hyper feminine gender. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that's the thing with the shoes before, right? Where yeah. They were women's shoes, but yeah. because they weren't hyper feminine, that was no good. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is like... You know, you're being forced to conform to an even narrower definition of femininity than you would generally be forced to do Mm. in society uh, as a whole. I did kind of find interesting the thematic parallel here uh, between, you know, real life Joe D'Angelo and um, the obviously much more dramatic way that Joe is cut from the peaches in the show, where Joe doesn't want to attend the gay bar, but has her arm twisted by Greta and Carson, and Mm. as a result, uh, ends up you know, separated from the rest of the group, uh, arrested, and then has to be, like, traded to another team. Yeah, yeah. But it is kind of a similar... Yeah, there are similarities of, like, she's getting punished for something that she didn't even really want to do or choose to do. Yeah, and, you know, like, she was being deliberately very careful because she really cared about baseball and cared about that more so than being openly queer. Yeah, or even Within like in that context or even like being queer like it's not that she's not being openly queer she's basically just being like i'm just not going to do anything queer for the duration mm. of this league yeah, yeah yeah other players developed relationships during their time in the league including terry donahue who originally met the woman who would become her partner for life pat henschel in nova scotia in 1947 uh, but eventually came to live together in Chicago as Terry played for the Peoria Red Wings. Mm-hmm. Incredibly well documented by non-binary sports writer Frankie Della Crater, uh, are several players whose queerness became apparent only upon their deaths when obituaries would refer to their beloved partners or loving companions. This obviously only covers players who were in long-term relationships, often like 40 plus years mm-hmm. when they died. And even then, Della Crater has exercised some restraint. I'm unclear on the exact process, but they mention excluding the names of players who were likely still closeted when they died ah yeah so i think it was like there were plays where it was very obvious in their obituaries that like yep this player was out within 
you know, her community. Yeah. And so we're happy to talk about that in the obituary. And then there's others where it's like, probably this player was queer. Yeah. <laughs> Based on pieces I'm picking up, but I'm not going to mention this. Mm-hmm. Regardless of the exact process, players whose queerness uh, is specified in the article include third base Mabel Hole, buff hitter Millie Deegan, pitcher June Peppers, who is recounted to have decked a man who insulted <laughs> her on the street. <laughs> Good on you, June. Yeah. Uh, catcher Eunice Taylor, outfielder Barbara Sowers, and incredibly successful pitcher uh, Jean Chioni. Wow, there's just a lot of queers here. Yeah, and that, that's <laughs> literally all of those women, uh, when they passed away, were in like super long-term relationships, like 20 to mm. 40 to 50 years. That were mentioned in their obituaries. Yeah. Yeah, so that's like a tiny subset of, I mean, first of all, well, that's a small subset of the women who were in long-term queer relationships, which is mm. a small subset of the women who were queer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, that bit where they gradually discover everyone is queer in the show is just, that's how it would have been. Yeah, I mean, we're about to talk a bit more about that. Perhaps most notably, uh, Peoria Red Wings pitcher Mabel Blair came out publicly for the first time during a panel for the TV show at the 2022 Tribeca Festival at the age of 95. Oh, that's great. I'd heard that somebody who was involved like came out as kind of part of the show publicity, but I didn't realize she did it on a panel. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> I wonder if the other panelists were warned or if she just like said it. I don't know if they were, or at least even if they were, they were still crying on stage. Yeah. I um, mean, because I think it was some of the other, some of the actors from the show. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just super sweet. Yeah. Um, so yeah, as we've kind of alluded to a couple of times, the scenes in the TV show where we discover a whole host of lesbian players uh, that are in both the Peaches specifically and the League at large are by no means implausible. Neither is the aforementioned lesbian bar. The Encyclopedia of Chicago refers to lesbian entrepreneur Billy Leroy running lesbian bars which drew sizable crowds during this era. Uh, and while I couldn't find much more info specifically mm-hmm. than that um that i could confirm with any confidence i did find a post from the blog ephemeral jazz <laughs> <laughs> an incredible blog name yeah that specifically referred to Leroy's bar as a successor to the original 1230 club that was forced to close in 1934 after the end of prohibition uh, and references both the lack of signage of the new bar which is something we note in the show mm-hmm. uh, as well as the presence of cross-dressing women um, mm-hmm. Which is, again, something we see in the show where we kind of have, like, people of, like, not necessarily specified transgender, but, like, uh, women who are dressed in um, kind of suits and taking on a more masculine role. Yeah, and they definitely have a bit of a conversation about that kind of butch femme culture within the show. And, like, I think they talk – I can't remember which characters it is, but they do kind of have a conversation about that dichotomy and how they feel they fit into it and whether they feel they fit into it. Yeah, and I think yeah. there's an interesting – parallel to be made like i mean you know <laughs> very very obvious parallel to be made because mm. we get that bar scene um with the white players and then we get max's storyline where she goes to uh her uncle's party yeah and you know her uncle is explicitly just a trans man mm-hmm. and whereas you kind of get more yeah more of the kind of butch femme discourse within the white queer bar yeah but max also has that experience which i don't know if it's like you know about gender or about just kind of personal independence but max has that experience where she gets that suit tailored from mm-hmm. her uncle and she chooses to wear it differently to how he'd kind of like envisioned it. She wears it without the jacket. And she's like, no, this is how I like it. It feels more me, but it also like looks less traditionally masculine. So I think she kind of has a bit of that like storyline about exploring her gender and figuring out 
where and if she fits into that dichotomy. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's really good in the context of, you know, the sort of broader societal discourse right now that is obviously very bad. <laughs> um, yes. That kind of talks about, you know, trans people indoctrinating young people into mm. transness. And, like, you know, you see in the show that this is a much more realistic depiction of how this goes where she runs away from her mother because her mother doesn't understand uh, the baseball, let alone the kind of sexuality. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, she goes and meets this trans uncle and sort of gets to interact with him for the first time and shies away a little bit from that and sort mm. of goes, well, hang on a minute. No, 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 this isn't, I'm not you exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm not just a recreation of you. I'm kind of my own person. And then, you know, yeah, as you say, she's able to then like wear the suit how she wants to wear it mm-hmm. and sort of be a queer woman in the way that she wants to be. Yeah, yeah. Which is very cool. So yeah, none of this stuff is in the movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and overall, while the movie wasn't that inaccurate in what it chose to depict, mm. and while I acknowledge that for a generation of queers, it's apparently a pretty iconic piece of media, uh, and it did make me cry. <laughs> um, they do they do a scene in the movie uh which i wonder if they'll do something similar in the last four episodes we're getting of the show mm-hmm. um where they well they actually start and end the movie in the late 80s mm-hmm. with one of the players going to a reunion where they're getting inducted into the baseball hall of fame oh okay that's cool and then so you get a scene at the end of the movie where you know she arrives there and she's kind of been estranged from a lot of the players Mm -hmm. including her sister for a long time yeah and you know they're all like oh my god it's you you know like (laughs) you get to sort of see all these players who are now much older and like Mm -hmm. a couple of them have passed away and you know it's just like a very emotional scene yeah yeah yeah, so d- despite the fact that, yeah, I, d- I did think it was overall a pretty good movie, it did lie by omission. Yeah, yeah. You know, the regulations of the AAG PBL were shaped by homophobic concerns, and to depict the league without addressing that is to do a disservice to the many queer players who put their reputation and safety on a knife's edge in order to play the sport they loved. Mm, yeah, yeah. It is kind of interesting with the, what you recounted about how the movie ends to think about that through a queer lens. Like there must have been all these women who during the war were able to join this baseball league, were able to be amongst a lot of other queer women, obviously in a horrible environment where they're being, you know, <laughs> forced to perform their genders in a certain way. And then that would have ended and they would have just gone home and been like, well, I married my husband again. Uh, look after my kids. Cool. That was a nice little interlude. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, obviously probably some of those women were bi and actually happy to be married to their husbands, but some would not have been. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it, it was the case that some of the women, like, as depicted in uh, the movie, um, obviously we don't necessarily know what happens to the women yet in the show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, did end up staying in Chicago afterwards, mm-hmm. like, you know, and kind of, like, got jobs and set up homes yeah. in those places. Yeah. And I think that's where you end up with a lot of these post-World War II women who end up in long-term life partnerships <laughs> And long-term roommate arrangements <laughs> with other women. Yeah. I feel really blessed that we got this new show that mm. has actually kind of delved into the queer history of women's baseball. And whilst, alas, we're only getting a truncated second and final season due to all the crap that streaming services are putting audiences through in this era of TV, uh, I can't wait to see what we do get from co-creators Abby Jacobson, who, like her character Carson, only came to her queerness later in life, uh, and Will Graham. It's a really good show. You should watch it. It is. If you haven't, absolutely go and watch it. And yeah, if you want, if you want to see a very nineties movie, uh, <laughs> and maybe cry, 
and maybe cry a little bit, but also uh, endure a scene where Tom Hanks pees for just a solid minute straight. Yeah. I Yeah, I can recommend the movie, but a moderate recommendation. <laughs> Certainly not as strong as my recommendation for the TV show. Definitely watch the show, and then if you're just, like, starving for more baseball content, I guess watch the film. Yeah, I think you get a bit more baseball tactics in the movie. Okay, well, I mean, if that's your jam, then good. I don't know enough about baseball to appreciate the baseball scenes in the show. I'm just like, oh, yeah, there's some sport happening now, I guess. Yeah, I did like um, one thing in the movie. In the credits, they list players, like, they have the name of the actor, the name of the character, and then the position that they played. Uh-huh. Which I feel would have been really useful for a lot of people. If you follow, if you are a baseball fan watching the movie, you might be like, oh, I don't remember which the, what the name of that character <laughs> is. Because, like, as in the show, there's a lot of characters yeah. who, like, get one or two lines lines but you can be like oh well that was the second baseman <laughs> like <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so with that we've been queer as fiction i'm jace i'm alice uh and if you've enjoyed this episode you can check out queer as fact on spotify podbean apple podcasts or wherever good podcasts are found you can also follow us on social media we are on twitter tumblr and facebook as queer as fact at least for as long as twitter continues to exist <laughs> If you'd like to support this podcast financially, we have a Redbubble store where you can purchase merchandise such as Queer as Fact shirts and mugs, uh, and a Patreon where you can enjoy perks such as voting on episode topics and access to our monthly newsletter. And I'd like to give a shout out to one of our patrons today. Thank you very much to Reaper from the Abyss for supporting Queer as Fact. We really appreciate it. I also really appreciate that name. That's cool. (laughs) (laughs) Might be a Mass Effect reference. I know there are Reapers in Mass Effect, but I mean, Reaper from the Abyss could also just be... A cool name. A cool name. (laughs) All of this information that we've just been talking about can be found on our website, queerasfact.com. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you on the 15th of July.